Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett with Hickory Ridge Community Church. So glad that you're joining us today. And today we're starting a two-part message series called Biblical Community. Biblical Community. And uh, as I think about how wonderful the church is as it comes together, I realize that churches that have experienced community do it by design. It doesn't tend to accidentally happen. And uh, churches that are strong has nothing to do with their size. Uh, There are small churches that are healthy. There are large churches that are healthy. There are small churches that are unhealthy. There are large churches that are unhealthy. And so we think about how to have a church that lives in biblical community. And now maybe one of the ways that we can look at it is to look at the tallest trees in the world. You know, the tallest trees are the redwood trees, and uh, they're enormous. Uh, They're mostly found in California. And they can easily grow over 300 feet. I mean, that's amazing to be 300 feet tall. But have you ever thought about redwood seeds? I mean, all these trees had to start as a seed. Well, the tallest tree in the world right now is the redwood name Hyperion. Uh, It was discovered in 2006, and it stands at 379 feet. But even this tree started out as a small seed. Did you know that redwood seeds are so small that you could put a million of them in a little bag and you could weigh it and it would weigh only eight pounds. That's right. One million redwood seeds only weigh about eight pounds. And yet when these seeds take root and they grow, it will produce a tree that people come from miles around to see. I think about our Christian faith, right? Our Christianity has about two billion adherents around the world. But it wasn't always that way. In the days after Jesus' resurrection, there were only about 120 believers. They were huddled together in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, and they were just waiting, and they were praying and trying to figure out what was going to come next. Fifty days after Jesus rose again is called the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 1, we see that this little fledgling group of 120 believers, they grew, and they grew exponentially. Well, let's look at what happened to them in Acts chapter 2. But before we go too far in Acts chapter 2, let's remember what Acts 1.8 says, that you shall receive power, right? Uh, These new believers were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus promised them uh, before uh, he died, he was giving this this prophecy of what was going to happen in the future. And he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, and then I'm going to ascend. And when I ascend, the Holy Spirit will descend. And that's what happened in Acts 1.8. They received power from the Holy Spirit. It was a dunamis power that filled all the believers at that time. And we discovered because of this power of the Holy Spirit, the church grew. And it grew around this concept of biblical community. And so let's pick up the story and see what happened in Acts chapter number 2, verse 41. So those who received his word, they were baptized and they were added to the church that day about 3,000 souls. And what did these souls do? Uh, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And I love this next verse. It says that awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they held all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing what they had, all of the proceeds, to the poor as they had need. And in verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Wow, this is an amazing thing that happens. 120 disciples turns into 3,000 disciples after one sermon that is preached by Peter. Now, we've never seen anything like this happen before or happen again. But let's look at what biblical community, what it is all about. And as I look at this particular passage in Acts chapter 2, I see there are five things that were in common. Uh, Some would call these the five purposes of the church, and and that's what I would call it as well. And, And we think about what great biblical churches have in common. And I see that they are devoted to certain things. Uh, They are devoted to making disciples, first of all. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is an important point. They didn't just listen to sermons. They studied the scriptures. And it says, is it true? Is it relevant? How can I live it? How can I pass it along? You see, they were devoted to understanding the Word of God. You know, as I think about this group, they were serving, and they were serving, and nobody was serving outside of the will of God. They were all realizing they were called to be ministers. So they were heavily involved in discipleship. You know, we find in Mark 1.17, and this is a very helpful passage to look at, Jesus said this, follow me and you will become fishers of men. So when you think about discipleship, it is following Jesus. Follow those who follow Jesus. Now, I see that there are three characteristics of a disciple. Number one, if you're going to be a disciple, you must follow Jesus. Now, that seems really painstakingly obvious, right? But you can't be a disciple without following Jesus. Number two, a disciple is one who not only follows Jesus, not just curious, but has been changed by Jesus. You know, you think about change that happens in our lives. So many people are are getting hung up in battles of what is moral, what is immoral. But I want you to know that if you are changed by Jesus, your life is different. In John chapter 8, you know the story very well. You see the story that Jesus gives where he's encountering a woman that was caught in adultery. Now, we also know that at this particular moment, they were trying to trap Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't fall for it, and neither should we, right? Because I think about where our world is today. It used to be that the most popular verse in the Bible was John 3.16. But I think now the, the most popular verse in the Bible is Matthew 7.1. Matthew 7.1 says, judge not that you be not judged. Uh, so many people in the world say, that is the main verse in the Bible. Don't judge. Now, they take that way out of context, and they don't read the, the verse preceding it or the verse that follows it. And the main reason Jesus is saying, don't be one who judges because the same way that we judge others is the same way that we will be judged. In other words, when we make judgment calls, and we all do make judgment calls, we better understand that we're going to be judged the same way that we judge others. So be careful as you judge. But as we look at John chapter 8, verse number 11, we have this woman who has been caught in adultery. They bring her to Jesus and say, what do you say? What should we do to this woman? The law says she should be stoned. Well, Jesus didn't fall for the trap, and neither should we when those come against us and, and try to get us off track. Jesus says to the woman, uh, one by one, as the accusers went away, and, and he said, well, you know, the first guy here without sin cast the first stone. And, and one by one, they left, and, and, and lo and behold, there's nobody left except Jesus and this woman who was caught in adultery. And what does Jesus do? Jesus uses a compound sentence. Now, now, a lot of people like the first part of the sentence, but they forget the second part of the sentence. A compound sentence is a two-part sentence separated by a comma. So Jesus said to this woman, where are your accusers? 
says, I don't know what they're gone. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, comma, go and sin no more. Jesus says, I'm not condemning you either. She was self-condemned. Her sin was condemning her. Jesus didn't have to condemn her. The law was condemning her. He says, I'm not going to condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. So somewhere between the first part of that sentence and the second part of that sentence, right around that comma, this woman was born again. And as a result of being born again, her life changed. You see, if you've never been changed, you've never been born again. If you can continue to live a lifestyle of perpetual and unrepentant sin, it's because you've never been changed. You've never been born again. Listen, when I got saved, my life changed. It wasn't that I became perfect. It wasn't that I became a person that was was no longer tempted or no longer fell into sin. My life was changed and that my desires were changed and God forgave me of my sins. Here's the third characteristic of a disciple, one who follows Jesus, one who's been changed by Jesus, and one who is committed to the mission of Jesus. And as I think about being committed to the mission, as we look at how we are committed to any kind of mission, it affects three parts of our lives. Number one, it affects our head. The mind is where decisions are made, whether I'm going to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. So this woman at the well had to make a decision. Would she be committed to sinning no more? She was not condemned. She was forgiven. Now she was going to follow on in her mind and no longer live that lifestyle. So it affects your head. But the next part is it affects your heart. You know, in discipleship relationships, we are changed by the Spirit to be more and more like Jesus. Now, we're never going to become Jesus. Our Mormon friends believe that you can become God. You're never going to become God. Listen, when we think about being like Jesus, we are identifying with him. We are taking on his characteristics, but we are not God. We are not him, but we become more like him. I I guess you could say it's kind of like your son or your daughter following in your footpaths, following in your lifestyle. They can't become you, but they're picking up your traits. They're picking up your characteristics. So the heart is different. And then number three, We'll become a disciple of Christ. It begins in our heads. It drops down into our hearts as we become more like Christ as we're changed by the Spirit. And then it affects our hands, the actions, where we're actively committed to the mission of Jesus. That is sharing the gospel with others. So the first thing we see about this early church is that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings and discipleship. Secondly, we discover that they were involved in fellowship. Now, I want you to know something about fellowship. Fellowship is only possible with believers. When you think about having a connection, the connection that we have when we fellowship with others is not just our personalities, not just the common things that we enjoy doing together. Those are part of it, but really there's no fellowship unless Christ is the center. You see, you think about falling out of fellowship. Uh, If you could fall out of fellowship, you were probably not part of the fellowship in the first place. John actually identifies this. He says, there are some who have left us, and they left us because they were never originally a part of us. They left something that they didn't belong to anyway. When I think about connecting and fellowship, you know, so many times we feel uncomfortable when things go sideways, right? But if you are in fellowship with somebody, you look past all that. One of the blessings, I guess you could say, of, of having a special needs son is that you, you learn to not really care about what others think. 
You've learned that that you have this connection with this special needs child. You have this special love for this special needs child, and that trumps what anybody else would think. David Brooks wrote in the New York Times about a, a rabbi named Elliot Kukla, and uh, this rabbi once described a woman with a brain injury, and as a result of this brain injury, sometimes she would fall to the floor, and people around her would rush to immediately get her back up on her feet before she was ready. Uh, she told this rabbi, she says, you know, I think people rush to help me up because they are so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. She says, but what I really needed, uh, what I needed was somebody to get down on the ground with me. I think about fellowship. We get down on the ground with somebody that needs us. We all need somebody to get down there on the ground with us. That is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He fellowships with us. I was listening to a story about a 108-year-old Holocaust survivor who called himself the happiest man on the earth. This guy by the name of Eddie Jakum lived over a century, and he had a lot of life experience to draw from. And uh, he recently passed away. But before he passed away, he did a TED Talk. And this self-described happiest man in the world gave this TED Talk, and he wrote about his philosophy. Now, Jaku is a, a Holocaust survivor. He was born in Germany. And he says, I thought I lived in the most civilized, the most cultured, and certainly the most educated country in Europe. And I was a German first, and I was a German second. And I was only Jewish when I was at home. On November 9th, 1938, after Nazi forces burned synagogues and destroyed Jewish homes and stores and all of their property, Jakku returned home from boarding school one day to an empty home. In the morning, he was taken to a concentration camp. And over the course of years, Jakku and his family were reunited and then escaped and they were in hiding. But in 1943, they were arrested and sent back to a concentration camp. He said, I was finally transported to my hell on earth. He said, my parents and my sister, they were also transported to this concentration camp, and I was never to see them again. You know, more than 6 million Jewish people were killed in the Holocaust. In 1945, Jakku was sent to the Death March, but somehow he escaped into the wilderness. He was rescued in June of that year, and he said that after the war, he was miserable until he met his wife and they started a family. He said that was 80 years ago. I didn't think I would have a wife, and I didn't think I have children and grandchildren, and now even great-grandchildren. He says this is a blessing. Jacuzzi said that in spite of all of his experiences, he doesn't hate anyone. He said this about hate. Hate is a disease that may destroy your enemy but will also destroy you in the process. Where there is life, there is hope. If there's no hope, you're finished. He added, family and friends are key to that hope. Friendship is priceless. Shared sorrow is half sorrow, but shared pleasure is doubled. He said that he hopes his story will inspire others to make positive changes in their lives every single day. He says, I want to make this world a better place for everyone. I want everyone to take a step back and say, we are here for all of us. What did he understand? Now, I don't know if Jacku was a believer or not, but he did understand the importance of connection, the importance of fellowship. 
having that connection with other people. You know, there's another thing that also we see the early church had. Not only were they devoted to the apostles' teaching, not only did they spend a whole lot of time discipling one another, but they also spent a lot of time in fellowship. And then thirdly, they understood service. You know, there are no such things as prominent service people, right? Uh, There's no such thing as a prominent service or an obscure service. It's all the same with God. You know, one thing I know, the only ones among you who are really going to be happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. You see, there's joy in service. (laughs) You know, I find the happiest people at Hickory Ridge Community Church are the ones who are serving. Yes, serving, faithfully serving. Uh, They are consistent. Uh, They're not jumping around all over the place. They are consistent. I've discovered something else about if you want to have a great faith, if you want great faith, you got to be greatly faithful. Consistency. You can't have great faith without great consistency. I think about the story about Herb Tedeschi. Herb Tedeschi was this guy that simply said yes, that led to a lifelong life of service. Herb attended the New Jersey Americans' first ever ABA game in 1967. Uh, That's the American Basketball Association, which was kind of bringing competition to the NBA, but later on joined back with the NBA. But in October of 1967, Herb went to a game, and as he's watching the game there in Brooklyn, he arrives and and he discovers that a friend of his is there, a guy by the name of Max, and and Max was the uh, one of the coaches, and 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 he saw his old high school friend at the game, and and he comes over to Herb and he says, "Herb, can you help us out?" And uh, and Herb says, "Well, you know, I'd be glad to do whatever I can. I'm here at the game anyway." And and so they said, "Well, you know, we got this game started, but we don't have a scorekeeper. Will you keep score of the game tonight?" Well, Herb responds, "Says Max, I'd love to do that." And he sat down at a wooden folding chair and at the half court, and he jotted down the lineups. And there were more than two thousand games that Herb continued to keep score for. And matter of fact, for fifty three years. Herb was that sideline guy who jotted down the score, jotted down the lineups, and kept tally of who was ahead. Since then, the team has moved to three different cities and played in eight different arenas, and they've been absorbed into the NBA. But there you have Herb, still sitting in that wooden chair. You know, Herb said this, I've never left that seat since. I've been sitting there since 1967. He says, I'm still here, and I'm still going. When you think about that, Bob Delaney, the NBA official, said that Herb is the Michael Jordan of scorekeepers. There was actually an article about him in Sports Illustrated that referred to him as the courtside constant. One simple yes led to a meaningful, lifelong service. You know, you think about that. You have a guy like Herb can spend 53 years, 2,000 games, just keeping score, just faithfully showing up doing what he's asked to do. How much more should we as followers of Christ show up and do what God has asked us to do? Jesus said this in Matthew 20, 28. He said, you know, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. I think we're most like Jesus when we are serving, taking that act of service and helping one another. Well, the church had service in common. They had fellowship in common. They were discipled together. They, they studied the apostles' doctrines, and they studied the teachings of the apostles together, but they also worshiped together. 
Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said, we are worshiping what we are becoming. In other words, our deities shape our identities. We become what we worship. Now, Emerson had a law, and he, and he talked about the law of two different men. This is one of these times that I wish I wasn't on radio, and I could show you a picture of these two men that I'm about to talk to you about. One guy is Charles Darwin. You're, you're very familiar with him. The second guy you might not be quite as familiar with, his name is Jonathan Edwards. And as we look at these two men, Charles Darwin, obviously the evolutionary scientist, wrote in his autobiography these words. He said, you know, my chief enjoyment, my sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. From this work, he added, I am never idle. As it is, the only thing which makes life endurable to me is my work in science. Now, what effect did devoting himself to scientific work his entire life, what effect did it have on the person that Darwin became? Well, this is what he said. Up to the age of 30, Poetry gave me much pleasure, and I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now, for many years, I have found that poetry is so intolerably dull that I'm nauseated by it. My mind seems to have become a kind of a machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. This loss, he said, is a loss of happiness. I have become a withered leaf for every subject except science, which he later in his life saw as a great evil. You see how he ended his life? He felt like he was a a withered leaf for every subject except science. Now consider Emerson's law at work in life of another person who was very influential, a person who was a genius. He was a theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, at the age of 19, wrote these words. He says, I'm resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and to confide in Him, and to concentrate myself wholly to Him. Later in his life, Edwards reflected on on how his object of worship affected his soul over the years. He said, as a result of worshiping God, it has brought to me an inexpressible purity, a brightness, a peacefulness, and a ravenishment of my soul. In other words, it made the soul that I have like a field or a garden. Here we have two gifted men. One became a withered leaf, and the other became a garden. The object of their ultimate devotion shaped the very different kind of men these two became. Listen, the same is true in your lives. And in my life, whatever we devote our lives to, whatever we worship, we will become. Neil Postman says this when we think about the next feature of the church. They were devoted to evangelism. Neil Postman says, all of our knowledge results from questions. As we think about reaching our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to join me tomorrow because I'm going to go and I'm going to explain to you how to be an effective evangelist in the culture that we're living in today. As I think about reaching people with the gospel today, so many people think, well, nobody's interested in the gospel. Uh, Mr. Postman points out that as we look at sharing the gospel, 
Maybe the reason that we haven't been so effective in sharing the gospel is because we're afraid to ask too many questions. He said that questions lead to new facts, new perspective, and new ideas. And so he says, you know, you think about Jesus. In the gospel, Jesus was asked 183 questions. But you know, he only answered three of them. Instead of answering, he in return asked 307 questions back. You know, if anybody didn't need to ask a question, it was Jesus. I mean, why do you think he did that? Jesus knew that good questions can help us understand much more about somebody and can help this process of helping them to believe. Knowing where they're coming from will be very helpful in wisely formulating an answer. And when the time comes, they're open to discussion. So join me tomorrow as we look at ways to share the gospel in our culture today. Now, if I can pray for you and if if I can help you in any way, I want to encourage you to send me a text message. My number is 252-267-2365. 252-267-2365. If you need me to pray for you, you want our church to pray for you, shoot me a text, 252-267-2365, and we will pray for you on Thursday morning from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the morning. Well, thank you for joining me today. I look forward to speaking with you tomorrow. God bless you. 252-267-2365 if I can help you with anything. God bless you. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557 or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.